Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the communists from taking yeah. over. For example, in Europe, uh, uh, in 47, 48, 49, uh, the Greeks and the Italians, we... We don't do CIA. that now, though. We don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah. Mm, only for a very good Can cause. Can you do that? Do a Vine video on those former CIA directors. Only for a very good cause in okay. the interest of democracy. All right, thanks for being here. All right, good evening, everyone. We're the Entry Level Left. I'm Jared. Matt. Nathan. <laughs> the vape. Vape and Nathan. Full cloud in your vape mouth. Vape and Nathan. Vape and Nathan. Vape Nation, baby. We'll, we'll see if that vape makes the nation. episode. Nah, keep it in. Anyway. Uh, so tonight we're going to be discussing imperialism because it's quite important for any leftist to understand, certainly any introductory leftist, and it's something that I think is particularly relevant to today. So with that said, let's get started. What is imperialism? Imperialism, I think it's thrown around a lot, like it's become sort of like a buzzword, but really I think, to put it simply, it's just empire building. Interesting. You think it's thrown around a lot? I think so, yeah. I think it's thrown around a lot by the left. I don't think it's thrown around. I think around. The, the liberal, like liberals throw it around, but they misunderstand it. True. But I think that's the best way to think about it, because like, we'll, we'll get into talking about colonialism, which yeah. kind of goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. But imperialism is first and foremost, like empire building. Yeah. So it may involve colonialism. It may involve different types of circumstances of colonialism, but... First and foremost, it's empire building, you know, whether it's to extract resource from a, a proxy country or an annexed nation or country. It doesn't really matter. What the concept means is essentially empire building. It's the intervention of a state power in a sovereign nation to benefit the intervening state's material interest. Right. I think what's so interesting about it is that it goes even before, like, nation-states. Like, there are still desires to build empires, like, going right. all the way back to, like, Sargon of Cud. Right. You're seeing it, it was before capitalism, like you pointed out. Mm -hmm. It was before feudalism. It was before mercantilism. Mm -hmm. It came before pretty much all that. So it, it feels mm -hmm. sort of like this weird, impulsive societal itch mm -hmm. that uh, any sort of organized society kind of gets at some point. I think uh, an interesting distinction that Jared made when we were sort of writing the episode was... Imperialism predates capitalism. Right. So capitalism is kind of surrounds this idea of like a new imperialism, neo-imperialism, which involves financialization and different concepts we've talked about previously, like in the last episode with neoliberalism, how we talked about the World Bank and IMF. Mm -hmm. That's where we make the distinction between new forms of imperialism and old forms of imperialism, like pre-capitalism in the days of mercantilism or feudalism and stuff like that. You could even lump colonialism within the like imperialism kind of umbrella. But I think where that distinction that we're so common with in terms of looking at imperialism or thinking about imperialism is more of like that broader, like leftist specific take on imperialism that really highlights the ways in which kind of capitalism expounded upon already existing forms of imperialism or conquering or, you know, anything of that with the intent to intervene in a foreign nation's affairs to extract resource, which 
goes all the way back, really, to our first episode, kind of talking about this long-term, historically materialist understanding of the development of capitalism. So, too, you have these kind of new developments and variations of imperialism kind of along with that development. Right. And there are some examples in, like, U.S. history where if you take, for example, like the early 20th century with, like, the Spanish-American War and things like that, you start to see America get into this economic slump, which is then, you know, upturned by an incidence of what we would consider more the beginnings of a neo-imperialistic regime. Going kind of back to what Jared said, it takes many forms. Colonialism is one of those forms, but it's not necessarily all those forms. And sometimes these forms can be like violence. Sometimes they can just be through propaganda. And yet, despite all the forms that it does take, there is one thing that is consistent, is that the dominant country always materially benefits in some way, and that can be used as a tool to identify what is imperialism. Mm -hmm. Right. We're kind of currently going over like more of the historical aspects of imperialism, but kind of as we go throughout this episode and future episodes, when we talk about imperialism, it's going to have more of that like leftist connotation that's looking at it as a byproduct of or in conjunction with capitalism thus referring to more of that kind of neo-imperialism or new imperialism that today we would just commonly as leftists or since Lenin, you know, have referred to neo-imperialism, new imperialism as just imperialism. Uh, But with that, why is imperialism even a relevant topic? It's relevant because it's still happening, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're still seeing the effects of it. We're still seeing like residual social relationships that have developed between countries, between organizations, between corporations, between many different structures within modern society. Like you mentioned historical materialism, which is sort of like a core concept in Marxism and analyzing the series of of social conflicts throughout history that have led us to these material conditions in which we live in today. So imperialism is currently happening like the u.s is currently trying to stage a coup in venezuela right now so i mean these topics are insanely relevant so you bring up venezuela as being like an instance of like you know why imperialism is a relevant topic because it's still going on today but like what specifically about what's going on in venezuela is you know imperialist for people who don't know really what i want to highlight here is how the U.S. has sort of intervened. And the U.S. has a long, long, long history of intervening in democracies in South America. But really, I think the thing to highlight here is that the U.S. is trying to intervene, not because they care about, you know, human rights or democracy in Venezuela, but because they want to get in there and and liberalize the markets. And You know, this isn't just amusing. This is stuff that Mike Pompeo and John Bolton and even Trump to some degree has come out. And And Rubio, Marco Rubio. They've mentioned it. They've made it very clear. Some information has come out about them actually staging the uh, the blackout, Mm -hmm. you know, where the electric drops off. And I think they took that out of a playbook, you know, where the idea was to sort of foment that angst against the government or the Maduro regime. The easiest way they thought to do that was to cut the electricity. Yeah, even look at like their envoy is Elliot Abrams, who's like a bona fide war criminal. Yeah, like admitted textbook imperialism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I think too, and what you were getting at is like 
the U.S. is intervening specifically in, quote unquote, the name of democracy. But they have, in this case, and, you know, the height of the Trump administration have specifically stated on multiple occasions that if we were to liberate their democracy, not only would they get democratic freedoms, but our our companies, our corporations can get in there and take over Pedavesa, which is the state-ran oil company, and they can access these new markets. And I think that right there, bringing it back to this historical analysis, is so important because historically, the connection between imperialism and capitalism is to intervene directly, often with militaristic force, in a sovereign nation's affairs with the intent to generate new markets, gain access to new markets, gain access to new resources, to utilize those markets, and so on and so forth. So just to make it clear for a listener who may or may not be aware, imperialism is not the same thing as capitalism, obviously. Imperialism in context of this discussion may aid and abet capitalism, but they're very different concepts and we're not trying to conflate them. Going back to the main question, which is why is imperialism a relevant topic to us? There's a sort of pervasive imperial mindset that seems to have really never ended. I think it started all the way back even like with traditional philosophy. Like very, very wise moral guys, Kant said, the race of the American people, who he's referring to is actually the Native Americans in this case, mm-hmm. cannot be educated. It has no motivating force for it lacks effect and passion. They're not in love, thus they are not also afraid. They hardly speak, do not caress each other, care about nothing, and are lazy. But later on, he refers to the race of the... Uh, inexplicitive. <laughs> yeah. One could say, is completely the opposite of the Americans. They're full of effect and passion, very lively and talkative, and vain. They can be educated, but only as servants. Right. So even going back to, like, OG philosophers, there's already, like, this sort of, like, them and us sort of divide right and i think what that quote highlights is like you're essentially saying like there is this sort of philosophical moral justification you know associated with these imperial acts i mean definitely from kant's era on some strong racist xenophobic tendencies develop in society but moreover i think it speaks to a larger culture of just white supremacy and patriarchy that you know, is is really endemic to Western civilization mm-hmm. and the way it's spread and diffused, you know, throughout the world. It's really hard to kind of divest that philosophy from just a larger cultural movement of colonialism and, and the spread of, you know, white supremacy and white patriarchal elements in society in general. I tried to just come up with like a brief list of like all these different academic yeah. racism and this kind of justification for imperialism. And it was just impossible. I mean, every... Every single discipline that you really looked into, there was just something to justify or to at least partially justify treating a group of people like they're subservient. Right. Going through like the history of a bunch of different academic disciplines, you can see where sorts of like early race realism really fits in. Herbert Spencer, who's like a sociologist, he actually made the phrase survival of the fittest, and he actually wasn't applying it to Darwin's concept of natural selection. He was actually applying it to social Darwinism. He pretty much came up with with that phrase to describe essentially that the the most apt to survive nations would be the ones who did survive in any case. So it kind of like built this idea that there's a hierarchy of civilizations. Another thing on the, on the geography side of things, uh, environmental determinism for a long time, the pervasive belief was that depending on where you're from, the climate that you're in 
could affect your your humanity. Right. Uh, people who were from like the subtropic areas, they weren't even viewed as fully human. You know, what does that ultimately play into? I think it plays into a long history like associated with colonialism, imperialism of sort of justifying those acts, right? Like we need to civilize these people. We need to bring them. And I think it, you know, it does touch on like when we had initially brought up, you know, Venezuela as a relevant cur- current topic, which we're going to get to later. So I don't want to beat a dead horse. But it does relate to it because it's kind of like, oh, well, clearly these people don't have their own democracy. Therefore, we have to go in and establish it, which what does that really mean? It's they don't have a democracy we like, which a democracy we like could be fucking some ruthless shit like in, you know, Chile, Pinochet, or in Saudi Arabia with that current dipshit who's in power now. Yeah, it's just sort of ironic, don't you think, that like we'll support them they're not even a democracy but we'll need we'll feel the need to go intervene in an actual democracy with elections right not run by a caliphate right but anyway so going with that going kind of with this trajectory we're going on um what are some historical examples of imperialism that we can think of before we get too deep into this discussion the main distinction or takeaway for listener who may be more on the liberal side is a great example of a colonial situation would be Vietnam when the French sort of colonized Vietnam. That was sort of a big um, factor in the Vietnam War and the separation between, what was it, North and South Vietnam? It was Vietnam. a major factor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is pretty much the catalyst for the Vietnam War and U.S. intervention there in the first place. Um but I think that's a an example of colonialism because the French were settling in Vietnam. Mm. They were building a society there and they were using the resources. So sort of like an example of, of colonialism and imperialism. All the description about the French colonizing Indochina, a.k.a. Vietnam, like, yes, that is an example of colonialism. They're occupying the country, putting it under French rule, extracting wealth back to the like mother country, that sort of thing. So when the National Liberation Front ran by Ho Chi Minh and, you know, all of them, like their liberation struggle against the French and to basically advocate the right to self-determination for their own sovereign state and their victories that they had were an example of them, again, trying to self-determine. It became imperialism when the U.S. intervened. When the U.S. brought in military, you know, started a war against Vietnam to effectively crush any attempt at them having their own right to self-determination because, of course, we associated it with, like, Soviet expansion and all that sort of stuff that would have limited Western influence, markets, territorial power in that nation. So I think that would be the highlight of... You gave an example of colonialism. The American intervention would be an example of imperialism. Matt really hit on earlier because during the Spanish-American War, that phase was really about acquiring more territory. We attempted to take over Cuba at that time. I don't know if we ever had like a military invasion, but we, we, we were very interested in getting Cuba at that time. We ended up at that point getting Puerto Rico as a territory and the Philippines as well. Guam, I think, too. But we did, we did attempt to... Um, intervene militarily in cuba it was the failed bay of pigs well that was yeah but that's like yeah. Nine, that's like yeah, nine, yeah, yeah. that's later 60 like years 50s, later 50s. yeah 50s. yeah 
Um, even Hawaii, you know, it had its own government for a period of time. And after sugar plantations were set up over in Hawaii, mm-hmm. it wasn't soon after that the, the U.S. started showing interest in getting a Navy base. And then mm-hmm. uh, shortly and- after that, a, a small group of American Hawaiian citizens overthrew the monarchy. And uh, shortly after that, uh, it became a U.S. state. Only 60 years later. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it also, too, they pretty much, like, the U.S. government pretty much handed that fucking colony over to the Dole Pineapple Company or whatever. Anyway, I think a lot of the stuff that we're hitting at here is, like, kind of this cross between imperialism and colonialism. Yeah, I mean, definitely they, like, work with each other. Yeah, well, so, okay, that brings the next question. How is imperialism different from colonialism? So imperialism is kind of like when we mentioned at the beginning, it's expressly like empire building. Whereas colonialism, in some cases, you have an intent to settle the land, not just extract resources from it. You want to bring your people there. Right. In both cases, you're kind of doing similar things. But I think that is the main distinction, at least for me. I mean, I'm not sure how you guys conceptualize it, but for me, it's like the U.S. started out as like a colony. Mm -hmm. And then what we did to the the Native Americans or the indigenous Americans would be what I would consider like imperialism. They had their own sort of like territories and we wanted to take over all the way westward to California. So I I would definitely consider that in a sense imperialism, whereas in the beginning with, you know, Jamestown and everything like that, that would be considered settling and a colony where a lot of the Wealth was still going back to the crown at that Mm -hmm. point. A colony is directly ruled by a foreign power. Like when you think of South Africa being a colony of the British or you think of any of these places that are considered colonies, they are like, like you were kind of saying, like there are their people there. There are British, for instance, like natives in the british colonies also they are directly ruled by the queen you know like they are a territory of that foreign power under imperialism it's more of an intervention with the intent to prop up maybe a national government that's sympathetic towards an imperial power so that that imperial power can gain access to new resources but It's different from a colony in that a colony is like specifically settled. That's why I would argue that, you know, westward expansion and the further disenfranchisement and ethnic cleansing of native populations in the United States, that was more of a colonial effort than an imperialist one. Because I would argue it would be an imperialist one if we like, I don't know, say there was a massive native territory and we killed their leader and put in a new one and let them still have their territory, so and so forth, as that leader was funneling resources back to us or was letting our companies come there and build copper mines or something. I mean, to some extent, I think that there were political elements involved in that type of like settler colonialism and, and destruction of indigenous populations in America, but... Yeah, I would say that's a fair distinction to make. I mean, people could argue about this, I think. Forever. Yeah, people, Forever. You could, they do. Yeah. You could argue a lot between the differences and the comparisons between them, but I think that's the main takeaway that I, right. that I would suggest to the listener is colonies are settled by the, right. the mother country's people. Imperial states maybe have more of that political alignment element, mm-hmm. more of like an empire-building without necessarily that colonial element. Yeah. But but of course cir- uh, circumstances and situations in history 
they kind of go hand in hand right. in a lot of cases. So to really excise them from each other, colonialism and imperialism, it's hard to do mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big post-colonial thinkers, Edward Said, he wrote the book Orientalism in mm-hmm. 1978. Um, and he provides a definition here of imperialism as the practice, the theory, and the attitudes of a dominating metropolitan center ruling a distant territory. While colonialism he refers to as the implanting of settlements on a distant territory. So it's definitely some some murkiness in there and right. definitely, definitely some overlap in there. There's overlap. I think the settler aspect is kind of that big distinction. But I mean, so we've kind of like worked out all these different historical examples We've even kind of touched on some contemporary examples in relation to how they are tied to this broader, like, historical narrative of imperialism. But what would we say now, moving on to the, you know, the contemporary, the present moment, or most recent present, what are contemporary examples of imperialism that we can think of? There are so many. I, yeah. You guys have, yeah, down yeah. here we have Iraq, Libya, Venezuela. I think those are the most... currently and prominently relevant right now but i mean just like we like we've mentioned in previous episodes like neo imperialism has this sort of hyper financialized and liberalized market component to it that is different in a lot of ways to you know maybe pre-modern imperialism or imperialism under a less like a pre-industrial revolution mm-hmm. imperialism differs from, you know, a modern one where we have modern machines, we have modern warfare, mm-hmm. create different situations. But Iraq is a great example. We basically, we being the U.S., invaded Iraq under false pretenses, and we've essentially created a market for weapons contracts there with the neighboring governments and we've made proxies there. We've made allies with the Saudis. And we're doing all types of like dealings there that I would consider a sort of financialized neo, uh, neo-imperialist neo environment. The name of the game has changed because now it's no longer about invading a country. Well, it is occasionally right. about invading a country, but there's a lot uh, there's a lot more soft power that goes into certain moves. Now the world standard is to be free trade. When actors act against that, we do start to take action, mm-hmm. like, for example, in Venezuela or like even against Syria or North Korea or something like that. Or even in this case, China with Trump. If we don't see them as a fair actor, we'll take soft power measures against them. The other thing that is super modern is the establishment of U.S. military bases. Mm-hmm. The last count that I could get was from 2015, and they had counted over 800 different military installations that weren't in the U.S. that were ran by the U.S., whereas the whole rest of the world only relying on 70 foreign military bases. So when it comes to militarizing different zones, the U.S. is far superior to pretty much any other country in a a militaristic view. Yeah, Yeah. that's like a 100% more than what all other countries combined. Yeah. That's an insane proportion. Yeah, and I think to both those points, it's like one... Yes, there are all those military bases there. Obviously, they say it's, oh, you know, to keep us safe or protect our allies. But we know what it really is. It's to show that our military force is there and ready to be deployed at any moment should someone fuck with us in any way that we deem problematic. Like whether it be they attacked us or whether it be they just didn't agree with, a you know. It's like a show of force. It's just 
insurance of presence, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that's key to imperialism. It's like, it's just showing that force. Ironically, like the military bases are another form of soft power right. because you'll see they'll, they'll use it as like a negotiation. Like, for example, Trump is saying maybe we'll stop training exercises in South Korea. Right. And so even just having that military base in South Korea mm-hmm. sort of gives them a chip to play against North Korea. It's the same thing with like Russia and our military bases in Ukraine. Right. You know, we're constantly doing exercises there. Right. And that shows Russia, you know, hey, we have something that we can hold against you. Right. What are you going to do about it? It seems like the two things that also came up in both of your guys' points was like this idea of this kind of like softer imperialism, this financialized imperialism. I think that's why the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, gets the nickname Imperial Motherfucker. Um, <laughs> because now the name of the game in in these sort of like softer elements is how do you just financially brutalize a nation into submission, whether it's, yes, through like austerity policies that we've talked about in previous episodes or whether it's through these like sanctions like we've seen with Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, Russia, whoever, basically on countries that are less powerful than us with the intent to economically discipline them into submission. However, what we're going to be looking at and monitoring over the next, you know, couple months, maybe year, whatever, is when does this quote unquote soft power, which it's really not soft power because sanctions come at a great like human toll um, and human cost, how far until they do actually extend towards direct military intervention, like hard power. Yeah, I mean, we're absolutely. where we're located at. I mean, we heard the helicopters and the jets like doing drills and stuff when all this like talk about you know potentially dismantling maduro was going on so yeah didn't they do a drill in like in the city in la yeah something like a helicopter drill well they they didn't explicitly say it was like to you know use against maduro but but you know it was yeah exactly you know that they're preparing for an urban invasion right so (laughs) i mean but yeah those are all i think really good examples Going back to the Iraq thing, like why that was such a like prime example of imperialism, but of course, like one of the most abhorrent like acts of criminal warfare ever witnessed, I would argue, is the fact that you're talking about a nation that had nothing to do with 9-11, had no weapons of mass destruction, but like sort of that American fear of the Middle East at that time. And Islam. And Islam in general, even though it was a secular regime, was used against you know, Saddam Hussein, someone that we at one point put in power, then like most American dictators eventually have a falling out with, and then we have to go to war with them to put in a new American dictator. Yeah, but we went to war over there, um, false pretenses, obliterated their country, left them in complete just political and financial ruin, led to the breeding grounds of all these like terrorist sects, most of which are financed by Saudi Arabia or some sort of Saudi Arabian ideology that's exported over there. But no matter what happens, what do all these sorts of environments do? They make great, great business for the Halliburtons and the, you know, Raytheons and all of that. Lots of customers, lots of resources. Right. And provide opportunity to to put in governments that maybe would take those oil fields over and start funneling some of that cheap crude oil onto American shores. So, And when you say funnel, it's not like a conspiracy. We're not saying they're like giving it to us for free, but they no. are creating market conditions that, that essentially Or allow us. for one of yeah. our companies to just take over the fields. I mean, that's what they want to do in Venezuela. I mean, right. ideally, they would get the U.S. you know oil exporters in there. 
and they would just be getting the oil. I think they even made like a similar case with Libya, like on the DL. But I think like one of the first things that happened when like Gaddafi was toppled and all of these sort of like rebel groups were forming is they took over all the oil fields and started using the money to just finance like their fucking slave trades and and (laughs) whatever else they were doing. Like if people think this is a conspiracy, I want to kind of just I don't know if y'all remember this, but I think it was Marco Rubio that posted the picture of Gaddafi. Yes. Like being brutalized like. They had one picture of him just like smiling, like he was relaxing. And then the other picture is him being like brutalized and he's all bloody. Right. And it's like, that was a provocation to Maduro. Right. Like this isn't, you know, this isn't a conspiracy that we're talking about. Like this is stuff that happens in real time and is not even undercover. Like they're not even shy about it. There's a Wikipedia page about it probably. Like that's again, going back to that sort of like imperial psychology that's been pervasive through all Mm -hmm. time. It's like... To, to Marco Rubio, that's okay because mm-hmm. they're doing it for the right reasons. These people don't have democracy. So right. to take out their leader is to do a good thing, no matter what it means. However, they like, can bend it psychologically to make it look like they're less free and we're liberating them. And America is the quote unquote world police and the good guy. Well, and I think that's a lot of it, too, is like I'm not going to say that this sort of shit hasn't always like happened with colonialism or like imperialism and colonialism. It's there's always been this like justification for doing it. I mean, you have to have some justification to kill millions of people and then be able to sleep at night like you have to have a narrative there. Right. But I think especially in the U.S., especially post Cold War. This just hyper nationalism and patriotism that the U.S. is always right and we're always on the side of good in the world. It's I mean, it's literally just beat into our heads through the media, the way we're brought up. It's like second nature for a lot of people. Right. And it's hard to conceive that these people who, yeah, don't get me wrong. It's not like, you know, Saddam Hussein or whatever was like a good dude. Like, I mean, he himself was a war criminal, but... Who initially put him in power? Who gave him the weapons that he used to kill his own people? Who trained him? And who trained them? And did did we call him a dictator when he was doing all those things? Of course not, because he was doing it financed by the U.S. He became a dictator when he did something the U.S. didn't like, which was the initial invasion of Kuwait. But... Yeah, we we ignored gassing the Kurds for right. like how many years? Right. And but, then suddenly it's used as justification. But, there's, but to- there's a pattern here, and it's that like... It's first they're the good guys, then they're the bad guys, then they're the good guys again, then they're the bad guys. It's a never-ending cycle of whatever the U.S. needs to do to make sure it's fine. Mainly its material interests are always met. It's material interests, and and if you notice, there's no fixed like moral principle of resource extraction. It's like, these are the bad guys, they tell us, but it's like, like we were talking about earlier, like. Saudi Arabia is not even a democracy and they're known for like the most numerous human rights violations. To me, they're the most undemocratic country Where in the entire then world. Then it's like a country like Venezuela who had, you know, hundreds of international observers confirm that the Maduro election was legitimate. I think there's like a great degree of separation, like both moral and, and ethical separation between the type of government you have in Saudi Arabia and then the Maduro government. And don't get me wrong, like Maduro isn't the end all be all. We don't necessarily think that he's the best thing since sliced bread there, but we'll take that over, you know, another neoliberal show. Or or even it's more just taking the line that it's like, look, 
It's not that we agree with these people. It's just why are we spending resources to completely undermine these countries that we have no business involving ourselves with, which we know why. Strictly for the interest of the capitalist class in the United States. It does not benefit the majority of American citizens. It's to benefit capitalist shareholders who benefit from whatever resources may be available to them in those countries, in those markets. I start to wonder like how people are even able to buy this story that that the government and the State Department sells them about Venezuela, where it's like this country is in such destitution, but we care more about this democratic, relatively democratic country and all of their abuses when we've got Saudi Arabia doing a hundred times worse. I mean, there's no, there's no consistent like ethics there. Even and, Israel is doing shit a yeah, hundred times and, worse. And then like, the people just believe it and buy the lie over and over and over again. I don't know if either of you guys have seen, but a Max Blumenthal has like this series where he's visiting Venezuela and it's sort of like a comedy thing. He's like going in public and talking to people like one of the episodes he went into a supermarket to just kind of show people that Venezuela is still very much a capitalist country. Like the supermarket doesn't look very much different from a supermarket in the U.S. And you can buy anything you need. I mean, they've even said like Denmark and Sweden are more socialist than Venezuela is. And for the listeners, if you haven't seen this, like go check out the videos that Max Blumenthal is posting about Venezuela. And you can see that he'll put side by side the mainstream media analysis saying things like they don't have toothbrushes, they don't have things like toothpaste. And then he literally goes in the supermarket in in like Caracas and finds like all of these luxury items. And I mean, the rich neighborhoods are where the opposition or the supporters right. of Guaido are. Or if they're in the U.S., they're in the rich neighborhoods of Miami, just like the rich who hate the shit out of Castro. and all Yeah, that like stuff. the Cubans who wear the MAGA hats, right, you know right. what I mean? So it's like money talks. It's not the ethnicity. It's, you know, money is controlling mm. things, mm. not, you know, the people. Just recently, a uh, story got walked back about Venezuela, about uh, burning the caravans. Oh, yeah. They originally that? ran that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so originally, for the listener here, uh, who might not have saw it, I think everybody, NYT, Marco Rubio, everybody was talking about how Maduro's troops at the border had stopped a caravan full of humanitarian aid and had lit it on fire. Well, probably a few days after that story comes out, uh, there's some videotapes of opposition protesters pretty much throwing Molotovs directly mm-hmm. at uh, the trucks only seconds before they erupt in flames. Right. So it's pretty and hard we'll to include that in the show notes. Yeah. We'll yeah. put all, all the info we're talking about. We'll put it in the but show notes. So you in, have it. In the point of that is not just like, Hey, look, they're wrong. This is one time, but it's this overarching thing where whenever something happens like this, the establishment is so quick to jump on this, whether it's like this scenario or if it's like WMDs in Iraq, it's, they're so easy to pick up a story right. because it fits the overarching narrative that but, they're trying to sell. But here's my thing. Even if they didn't have access to a fucking toothbrush, even if they couldn't use pine saw to clean their floors because it's not available in their fucking markets, why, why isn't it? Why isn't it there? Why are the supplies not there? Because of endless U.S. Sanctions. sanctions. And that's the constant narrative of you know our government which acts on behalf of the capitalist class who want access to these territories via these imperial projects is 
The dictator is starving his people. The dictator is starving his people. Overthrow the dictator and he'll stop starving the people. Which, what does that mean? We're sanctioning the shit out of the people. We are starving the people because we don't like this guy who's in power. As soon as he's tossed out of power, we'll end the sanctions until the newly elected guy who we don't like still because he's still not towing the line. Then we'll sanction them and talk about how he's a dictator until once again. They did the same thing to Mossadegh in Iran when he nationalized the oil sector. They did the same thing in El Salvador with Allende. Uh, as soon as he was proposing, oh, crazy radical notion, uh, a decent minimum wage unionization and healthcare for his people, super radical guy. <laughs> um, but I mean, that was enough. That was enough to for the assassination campaigns, the sanctions, whatever the case may have been. It's just blackmail and you yeah. know economic discipline until they get the narrative that they want. Have you guys ever heard of a book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins before? There's a really cool outline. I've heard that of the he book, gives. but I have not read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not the best book. There's probably some factual errors in there, but he gives a really good outline of how the US, what their kind of like overarching plan is, kind of breaks it down into like a three step plan. So, first, ask the country to open up their market or take loans. If that fails, move to step two support the local opposition party or rebel groups and institute protectionist policy against that country. If that fails, instigate a reason to invade. And it seems like every time you look at a country that we're involved in, mm-hmm. they're always somewhere on that scale. <laughs> it, and and to, you know, before we move on to the next point, to add to that as well, if you don't know who this individual is, look him up when you get home. His name is General Smedley Butler. Funny name, but he wrote a, a book about pretty much his entire military service and the things he witnessed and how during that entire time, he pretty much was just an agent for the... I can't like, you know, bastions of capital. I forget what the exact Those are the fruit companies, right? A, a few. Yeah, There's, yeah. But I forget how he exactly words it. But he basically talks about how, yes, he was an economic hitman for or, or an actual hitman for the economic elites of American society. So, again, General Smedley Butler, I don't care if you look up his Wikipedia page or you want to read his book. Fine. But um, he would definitely be someone to check out. Oh, and by the way, in the 90s, Coca-Cola hired hitmen to assassinate labor leaders in uh, Colombia. Colombia. Yes. Six of them, I think. Yep. If you don't believe us, look up. I think it's killercoke.com. They actually have a, <laughs> a web page. But yeah. anyway. So that happened. So basically going into this next topic, I think everything we've talked about really like flows into this coherently in relating imperialism to capitalism specifically because everything we've talked about up to this point on this show has been taking a topic and relating capitalism to that topic so why do principles of an unfettered free market trade ultimately produce neo-imperial regimes well we talked about it a lot in episode three but neoliberalism yeah just creating new markets you know Like I tell you guys, like always be creating new markets, right? Mm-hmm. right. How we joke about ABC. that? ABC. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, you know, when you, you hear those guys who are like pickup artists and they talk about like always be closing the set or right. whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and instead we just say, you know, always be creating new markets. You know, that's how we get our products in different places. That's how we get a source of cheap labor from third world labor markets and things like that. Like capitalism and the free market. To keep expanding and to keep growing, to keep wages low and profits high, we always have to be seeking new markets. And what better way to do that than imperialism? Mm -hmm. 
or neo or some imperial effort. Yeah. yeah, I think Matt nailed it, and to kind of exemplify what he's saying, uh, in the 1890s we were going through like a, a pretty significant recession. There was like 17 percent unemployment, and about 15,000 businesses were shut down in that in those years. Uh, and the U.S. was searching for new customers. It was like looking for new resources to to help stimulate the economy. And that's when we started growing imperially. That's when we started taking up more lands like Hawaii and Puerto Rico and the Philippines and everything like that. So that's an example of what he's saying in, in effect. Yeah, I mean, there's just I, I can't even really add much to it. It's just imperialism is directly associated with it's the strong hand of capitalism. It's when you do not willingly bow to our market forces, then we will force you to bow to our market forces, you know, through direct submission or some other kind of financial restructuring of some kind. I mean, I was just going to say, like, in that sense, like free trade, air quotes around free, but free trade is sort of like a, a boogeyman almost. It's like free for whom, you know, right. we want our U.S. corporations to go and... um you know, be able to privatize the oil market in Venezuela, for example, or, you know, take any example, how Trump now is getting involved with the land redistribution in South Africa. It's like we have tendrils everywhere mm-hmm. and it's not really about free trade. It's it's really about power dynamics. Yeah. Know? And it's important. I think what you just said, those, you know, we have those tendrils or those tentacles like spread throughout the world. It's important to keep in mind, like, those influences, those tentacles that we have out there are very, very ideologically motivated. The idea that there isn't a concerned or coherent effort, an organized effort, to continue the perpetuation of these American imperial efforts with the intent to gain access to more capital, gain access to new markets, that's going to continue and it's important to be aware of how concerted and coherent that yeah, effort is. It's a clear cut machine at this point. I mean, you can't deny it. If we look back historically, that's the point of the Marxist analysis of historical materialism. So with that then, you know, where should the left be on anti-imperialist positions today? I mean, they should be anti-imperial without a doubt. There's no circumstance where we should be supporting a- any type of imperial Uh, regime or intention Mm -hmm. i mean no matter how much we oppose Mm -hmm. you know certain governments or certain ideological forces like marxists socialists and people on the left should be supportive of a nation's right to self-determine their own destiny Mm -hmm. yeah i think every time you see any sort of like pro interventionalist type speech you should speak against it right you know if you see people who are trying to make a case and it doesn't necessarily have to be for boots on the ground, even if they're making a case for embargoes or for like any kind of trade or tariff type situation. You should be critical of those things and think, well, are we doing this for U.S. interest purposes or are we doing this as a, as a humanitarian thing for mm-hmm. that that population? I would add to what's already been said in just that, yes, the left should be anti-imperialist. We should be taking anti-imperialist stances. But with that, Understand, if you are financially burdened at home here in the United States, that's not Venezuela's fault. If you are exhibiting undemocratic tendencies in the United States, that's not another country's fault. If you don't have health care in your country currently, that's not 
another country's fault or another nationality's fault or another religion's fault right there is one minority in this country responsible for all of those things the rich howard schultz yeah right right. (laughs) the rich um the capitalist class they these people who uh are adamant about the continuation of the ruling class status quo that we have in our society, in our government, that perpetuates these endless wars for their constant material benefit. And they are also directly armed financially and in some cases physically against you, the the people, against us, the people, going to war with the country because it's supposedly undemocratic, whether it is or isn't, is not going to change your material conditions here. So don't advocate imperial projects don't fight wars abroad fight the fight here because that's where it's at i would say also you know realize the bullshit too if we're not being ethically consistent in who we go after in terms of being the world police like if we're going after venezuela because they're quote-unquote and undemocratic but then we ally ourselves with saudi arabia or other places that are terrible human rights abusers there's no consistent ethics there with that in mind there's no sound basis for american exceptionalism or this idea that we have the right to just go and stomp out anybody because they are not complying with our economic system or economic policies thanks guys that was an episode of the entry level left about imperialism you can check us out on facebook.com slash the entry level left or you can type in the entry level left on YouTube and check out yak 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 six nine shitty comment on our first video. <laughs> also, if you are on Twitter, we are on Twitter at the entry level left. We also have a website www.theentryleveleft.com. We post all of our episodes there for free, so you can get them there. You can download them there, listen to them there, whatever works for you. Also, by now we are on iTunes and Spotify. Um, Just search the entry level left on either and please, please, please take the time to rate us, leave us a comment, let us know what you like, what you don't like so we can continue to improve our show for you guys. Thanks, guys.